Oh my gosh, are you okay over there? Windpipe, you, you, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't talk right now. So just nod. <coughs> I forgot how to drink. <laughs> What's? <coughs> I'm just glad you're coughing because it means you're breathing. I never thought of that. No, they tell you when you're like when they when like you know, first day first day classes and stuff like that. You know, choking dealing with choking emergencies. They want you coughing because it means that you're trying to expel stuff. If you're not coughing or making any noise, that's bad. That means you're choking. Well, Doctor Mark Villa, MD. Thank you. <laughs> we can do this all day. Episode thirty-three, Spider-Man: Far From Home movie review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. A podcast where we review all the movies and shows in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going through the MCU chronologically and discussing our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Well, it is not a glorious evening here in the nation's capital, and that is because it's actually, for the first time in We Can Do This All Day history, a glorious afternoon in the nation's capital. Maybe even a little too glorious, given that it's, what's today, October the 28th, and it's like 80-plus degrees outside. That's kind of freakish. But, you know, global warming and all that. Hi, Emily. How you doing? Hi. It's, uh, I almost forgot how to do, it's like, it seems like the more we record, it's like the more and more I forget, I have to keep reminding myself, okay, this is how I set this up. Is this how we do this? Is this how we set that up? Well, and then I'm in a different spot today, so. You're in a different spot today. Yeah, she's got the, um, she's in the giant, uh, she's in the, she's in the expanded Studio E. <laughs> That's not the closet. It's like, uh, you know. The living room. The living room. It's like the scoring stage instead of the vocal booth. So yeah, it's 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 been a little while. I know, we're sorry, but you know we've been we've been kind of we last recorded. I think August eleventh is the date I think I had, and it's now October twenty eighth. Yeah, it's a while, but we've had uh, we've had a lot going on. It's just uh, life gets life gets. It's been it's been a it's been a busy year, hasn't it? You've been going a lot of places. I've been going a few places. Uh, it's just uh, it's a busy it's a busy year and a busy time of year. Well, so. and last weekend we probably could have recorded, but what did we do instead? Oh, well, thank you so much for thank you very much for that cue. So, as you know, Emily and I live in the Washington D.C. area, and we were fortunate enough to uh, go to the Kennedy Center last Saturday night to watch the National Symphony Orchestra perform uh first off they did a, a selection of music from classic horror films like bride of frankenstein and psycho and they sounded fantastic uh the event was um hosted by uh by composer michael michael Caccino, who as you know composed all the spider-man the, the scores for the spider-man films in the mcu dr strange thor love and thunder and werewolf by night the werewolf by night special which he also directed and he was hosting this event and also another really pleasant surprise that we got they had been advertising the week leading up to it that there would be a quote-unquote special appearance by kevin feige and of course 
you know, I was thinking, and I'm guessing you probably were thinking this too, Emily. Yeah, there'll probably be some pre-recorded video thing that they'll throw up on the monitor uh, just to throw a bone to all the fans out there. Lo and behold, when the NSO started playing the Marvel fanfare, who steps out onto the stage, jeans and ball cap and all, Mr. Kevin Feige himself. And I mean, I went nuts. You Everyone ascended. You were in the rafters. It was kind of a. It was kind of a. It was a semi. I've had. I've had experiences that were more religious than that. But that was pretty good. That, <laughs> that one was pretty, pretty high up there. That's still pretty high up there. So yeah, Kevin Feige was there, and he said a few words, and he actually came back out with Kachino later on in the show, to to sort of talk about a couple of things, and it was a. I it was a really lovely evening. They they performed the score to Werewolf by Night while we were watching it. It was the colorized version. Which you know, I would have preferred the black and white edition, but it was still I thought a really really enjoyable evening. We were with uh, fam. My wife was there, my son was there, some friends of ours, including uh, a friend of the pod, Cherokee Lopez. Uh, it was a really really enjoyable evening. I just I w- I did actually think it would be Kevin Feige, but I didn't want to get your hopes up and like crush your spirit, so I didn't say anything. I don't know. There, I, there was. A, I remember, you know, like the night before, starting to become somewhat agnostic about the whole thing. Because at first, I was like, "Oh, he'll never show up." And the night before, first, I briefly thought to myself, oh, "Maybe, but probably not." So I was very pleasantly surprised. That was really neat. So yeah, that was kind of our big. That was kind of our big Marvel thing this past week. But uh, today, we are finally back in the studio recording. We're finally back into the movies after our, what seems like a marathon review of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We're talking about Spider-Man Far From Home today. Uh, Do we have any MCU news now? I don't know. Still on strike. Well, I guess the big news so far, the Writers Guild of America did reach an agreement with the motion picture studio so they're back at work but SAG-AFTRA is still on strike so the actors I think they may have gone back to the bargaining table today or I mean sometime this week I hope they I hope they did and I hope it's productive and I hope the actors get what they deserve you know we'll see no no word on no word on any projects because everything is kind of at a dead stop right now in fact there are rumors that there are rumors that Deadpool 3 which was still slated for a May 2024 release there are rumors that that's gotten that's getting pulled. So I have the feeling everything is going to kind of come tumbling after that. I don't think we're going to see any new Marvel movies until maybe the end of 2024 with one exception, with one exception, we are less than two weeks away from the release of the Marvels. They're still going to make a, their current release date of November the 10th. So, and that might be it for a little while in terms of Marvel on the big screen. No other news because you know, Everything's on. Everyone's on strike. So, I guess that's that. Shall we move on then to this afternoon's main event, Spider-Man: Far From Home, which opened on July second, twenty nineteen, about two months after the release of Avengers: Endgame. Sony's insistence on a twenty nineteen release date caused a few problems for Marvel, as the marketing for the film kind of spilled the beans with regard to Peter Parker's fate after Infinity War. But I think we all agree everything worked out okay, and we got one more film in before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic screwed everything up the following year. The film stars Tom Holland, Zendaya, Jacob Batalone, Jake Gyllenhaal, Samuel L. Jackson, John Favreau, Kobe Smulders, Martin Starr, J.B. Smoove, 
Tony Revolori and Marissa Tomei. The film was directed by Homecoming director John Watts, of course, with a script by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. The budget on this film was $160 million, and the movie went on to gross a monstrous $1.132 billion, that's billion with a B, at the box office. Of the 32 MCU films released to date, Far From Home comes in at number nine in terms of worldwide box office earnings, which is about $3 million ahead of Captain Marvel, which hit the hit joined the billion dollar club earlier that year and about 19 million dollars behind captain america civil war our overall impressions of the film do you want me to go first or do you want to go first i'm never good at these so i guess you can go because i mean all i would say is that i really liked it so (laughs) it was way better than homecoming homecoming was not good i liked it it was good yes approved emily stamp Well, I, I basically don't have a lot to add. Uh, I've, I've said before that I've never been a big Spider-Man fan. You know, I thought the Tobey Maguire movies were okay. I thought the first Andrew Garfield film was okay. Actually, I thought the first Andrew Garfield film was really good. But you know, I didn't like the second one, and uh, I, I never read I never read the Spider-Man comics. I never really cared for Peter Parker in the comics because I always thought he was just kind of a whiny little pain in the ass. But I did like Tom Holland in Civil War and in Infinity War and in Endgame. And while I wasn't necessarily over the moon about Homecoming, I still liked his Peter Parker and his performance. There is a Stan Lee alliterative thing there, Peter Parker and his performance. I like this film a hell of a lot more than Homecoming, to to echo what Emily said. I think that since the filmmakers weren't saddled with having to establish Peter's world and his friends and his classmates, and so forth. It freed them up to just tell a compelling story with some really good action, and that's what we got. Uh, Far From Home, I like it because it just moves. It doesn't drag like Homecoming did, and I like that we were I like that we were taking Peter out of his element, out of New York, even out of the U.S., although, as you and Nick Fury point out later on, yes, he's been to space, and I recognize that, but you know what I mean. And I like that he got to face an honest-to-God Avengers-level threat without the Avengers to help him out. And uh, so at this, at, when this movie came out, it was my favorite Spider-Man film for a couple of years. Uh, I loved the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. He still might be my favorite Spider-Man, but I did like this one a lot, of course. I guess I said this during our Homecoming review. Andrew Garfield, I thought he, he does a really good Spider-Man. I mean, his Spider-Man might be better than, might be better than Tom Holland's. I think so. But Tom Holland, I think, has has overall has a great. He's got, as in terms of the actors who balance both sides, both the the, the Spider Man persona, as it were, and the Peter Parker aspect. I think he he gives us the really the best balance of the of the three actors that we're familiar with playing Spider Man on the big screen. Rankings, yes, I know Emily has something to say about this. I, I so they're now they're thirty. There've been thirty two Marvel movies uh, up through up through Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I have this one sitting comfortably at number 17. Which I think is bonkers. Which she thinks is bonkers. I have it just above Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and just below the original Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, it's a it's a great movie, and there just happen to be 16 other ones that I like more. That's that's, that's really all it is. That That's the testament to how good Marvel's batting average has been with me over the, over the years. They have this fantastic movie, 
but there, there happen to be 16 that I like even more than it. I have it tied at number seven with Endgame. So that's ahead of Black Widow and after Infinity War. That's pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. I'll tell high. you what, the next one, No Way Home, is much higher than that. <laughs> I have high, I have No Way Home higher. I definitely have No Way Home higher than, than Far From Home. Maybe not a whole lot, but it is higher. It's my highest rated Spider-Man movie so far. It's so good. And uh, so, yeah, this film, this film is the second part of what turned out to be John Watts' trilogy of Spider-Man films. And here we go. Nick Fury and Maria Hill drive into what's left of Ixtenca, Mexico, a town nearly obliterated by a cyclone which, according to residents, had a face. Seemingly out of nowhere, a man with a bowl on his head and garbed in a cape and armor appears in front of them. Behind them, a massive rock creature emerges out of the ground. The first figure shoots green energy beams out of his hands at it. We cut to Midtown School of Science and Technology in New York. It's been eight months since the Avengers defeated Thanos and returned everyone who vanished during the event known as the Blip five years earlier. Midtown decided to restart the school year halfway through for the benefit of those who blipped back. Those who disappeared did not age, while everyone else aged normally. As a result, many who were younger than those who blipped are now older than those who blipped. This is one of my favorite intro scenes in all of the MCU. I think the school's in-memoriam montage is hilarious. From the, the low-res images clearly obtained from wherever on the internet they could be found to that uh, that one picture that's got the, the Getty Images watermark still on it. And I will always love you. Hey, Nobody awesome. send that, that to my was, voice teacher. That was awesome. No well, one send that to my voice teacher. She would you, be so disappointed. Okay, well, I'm not your voice teacher, fortunately. That was awesome. She would not be pleased. I'll say, if I were one of the kids that didn't blip and had to do school all over again, I'd be so mad. How they had yeah, started well, school. No, no, no. I'd be so mad. I'd quit. I'd be done. It's It's funny because, like, Betty's complaining, but she blipped. I'm assuming she blipped because she certainly didn't get any older she would have been like out of high school so i couldn't quite figure out what was she what she was upset about oh i didn't know that she blipped I'm or just maybe assuming, maybe I'm she was just she upset did. about having to still be 16 when everyone else was 21 or whatever that could be it the school year is about to end and several students including peter parker ned leeds mj flash thompson and betty brant are preparing to embark on an end of year class science field trip to europe Peter is describing to Ned his plan to romance MJ, whom he has grown quite fond of, on the trip. Ned wants him to ditch the plan so they can tour Europe as bachelors together. I've watched so much non-Spider-Man TV shows and movies with Zendaya and Tom Holland recently that seeing them back in these roles is like a system shock. Like, I hadn't watched this movie in, I don't know, probably a couple years at least. And I got so used to Euphoria and Devil All the Time and the Crowded Room and all those things that they were in that are very dark and not plucky high schoolers. I'm like, oh, oh, right. You're children. I forgot. It probably comes as no surprise. I think the only, since that movie, since this movie came out, I think the only thing, the only project I've seen featuring either one of them that came out after it is you know Zendaya's 
very, very brief appearance at the end of Dune, Dune Part 1, I guess, unofficially. She'll, she'll of course, be in Part 2 quite a bit if the, if the movie ever comes out. Later that night, Aunt May, who, as you may recall, now knows that Peter is Spider-Man, hosts a charity event in support of those who became homeless upon returning from the blip. Spider-Man is there to do a meet-and-greet and pose for pictures with attendees. During a break backstage, Happy Hogan arrives to present May with a check for a donation from Pepper Potts. Peter notices May and Happy flirting with each other during the exchange. May returns to the stage, and Happy gives Peter a heads-up that Nick Fury is going to call him. Peter, befuddled as to why Nick Fury wants to contact him of all people, sends the call to voicemail and says he'll call him back after the class trip, a response that sends Happy into an apoplectic fit. You do not ghost Nick Fury. Answer the phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him, and I don't want to talk to him. Why don't you want to talk to him? Because I'm scared. Just answer the phone. I love Happy and Peter together. It's kind of like a vision of what we would have gotten between Peter and Tony if Tony hadn't died. You think so? I think so. I mean, like, it, obviously it's different because Happy's not Tony, but obviously Peter kind of always has this, like, older male figure. Mm-hmm. The original one being Tony, and the next one being Happy, and then the next one being Doctor Strange. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because you kind of need, you know, you need a mentor. And I think sort of Happy being a stand-in, since Happy and Tony knew each other so well and were in each other's business all the time, given Happy's job, mm-hmm. that it kind of feels like Tony, but, you know, obviously different. This is going to be jumping the gun quite a bit. I think, and only tangentially related to this particular film, I think to- Tony, I think Peter, Peter needs a mentor for this particular trilogy uh given where they're going and given how things end or at least where we think they're going given how things end the way they do in the end of no way home uh i think this is uh i think we are eventually going to see peter without a mentor and i actually kind of i'm actually kind of looking forward to that because that's more or less the way he is in the comics but for the but under the circumstances, I think it works out fine because this trilogy is all about him. In my opinion, this trilogy is all about him truly learning to become Spider-Man and become his own, become a hero in his own right. Peter masks up as Spider-Man and goes back out to the fundraiser to answer some questions, mainly being asked by members of the press. They're asking him about some pretty Avengers-level stuff, like what are you going to do if more aliens arrive, and how does it feel taking over from Tony Stark. Feeling overwhelmed, Peter leaves abruptly and continues to blow off Nick Fury in the process, who's continuing to call him. I'm pretty sure we talked about this in the first Spider-Man movie, that one of the reasons why I didn't like Homecoming is because it was too much Iron Man. Like, it was another Iron Man movie. And I was, at that point, because the other Iron Man movies weren't that great, and we had seen Tony for so long, I was, like, Iron man out. (laughs) And I guess that... Currently, watching the movie at this point, neither of us have been watching very much stuff with Tony. It doesn't bother me as much that like his handprint is kind of all over this movie still. And I imagine it's because we're being faced with a world that like we aren't going to see anymore Tony. And Peter is having to deal with the fact that his first mentor is gone. And it wouldn't make sense if there wasn't any Tony references at all. 
Oh, I mean, Tony Tony looms large over this entire picture, even though he's not in it. Yeah, Tony's dead, and yet still he is. But a I think huge I like character. it better this way. I, I do too. Oh, I think it works. Given what I think they're tr- what they were trying to do with this trilogy, the second part, and given everything that happened prior to it, it makes perfect sense. It's Peter kind of in this position, and I'll talk about this towards the end of the program. He's kind of in this position where, okay, I've just been through all of this. I've just you know, I've disappeared for five years. I've come back. I helped save the universe, but the man who was looking out for me is gone. Do I really want to keep doing this? I kind of need a break. So, but yeah, Tony looms large over this picture. We see Peter the next morning packing up for the class trip and continuing to ignore Fury's calls. May urges Peter to take a spider suit with him. Peter hesitates, saying he really needs a vacation from everything, including Spider-Man, but he ultimately packs the original Stark suit in his bag. When he finally boards the plane for their first destination, Venice, Italy, Peter finds himself seated next to Ned, but MJ is seated several rows back next to Betty Brant. Peter enlists Ned to help concoct an excuse to get him moved next to MJ, but the plan backfires, and Peter ends up spending the entire flight next to Mr. Harrigan, while MJ is seated next to Brad Davis, a boy who was five years younger than the gang before the blip, but who is now a junior and quite popular with the girls in Peter's class. To add insult to injury, Ned and Betty, who ended up sitting next to each other on the plane as a result of the whole attempt to get Peter next to MJ, are suddenly a couple, thus blowing apart Ned's American Bachelors in Europe fantasy. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out if Ned's Peter is allergic to perfume line was a genuinely awful excuse or if Harrington's interference is just another symptom of the infamous Parker luck. I suppose the two are not mutually exclusive. The class arrives in Venice, where typical class trip hijinks ensue. Cute photos, Harrington dropping his camera into the canal, Flash randomly getting punched in the family jewels while filming a TikTok video. Despite the hiccup on the plane, Peter follows through in his plan to woo MJ by purchasing a necklace of a black dahlia her favorite flower, because of the murder, from a nearby antique store. He bumps into her on his way out of the shop, but is able to conceal his purchase from her. (laughs) For some reason, I just love uh, Mr. Dell's line, When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Venice, your socks get wet. (laughs) Also, notice the ever-so-slightly-too-much-attention paid by the camera to the guy watching Peter and MJ walking along the canal before they're accosted by the rose salesman. Hmm. Did you know that Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has more bridges than Venice, the city of bridges, Italy? I did not know that. By, like, I don't remember the exact number, but it's a a noticeable number. Which is interesting because Venice, of course, is basically a city (laughs) entirely built on water. And Pittsburgh is not. Well, Pittsburgh's got a lot of, well... Pittsburgh's only Pittsburgh is not three but it's rivers. Got, it's got three rivers. You need you know, three bridges. So that's it. What is it? The, Maybe the, six. What is it? The Yana? Oh, I keep forgetting. Every time, every time I, every time I watch a football game in which the Pittsburgh Steelers play, and Al Michaels is making the call, he's always every time they do an overhead shot, he always talks about how Pittsburgh sits on the confluence of the what, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, and whatever the other river is called. Pittsburgh a, has like four hundred and forty-six bridges, and Venice has like four hundred and forty. I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. Too so many. I'm, I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan, so I'm kind of obligated to hate Pittsburgh. But uh, regardless. Also, on topic, 
Um, obviously, a big chunk of what Marvel does is done on an indoor soundstage, and this is all edited later, and it's all fake anyway, so they can cut costs, et cetera, et cetera. This is why people are on strike. But I hate when I can actually tell that something is fake, or at least not as well done as I think it should be. Like, there's a moment um, when MJ and Peter are talking just after the Rose Salesman that the lighting on her face makes it so clear that they're not like because I know that they did shoot some stuff in Venice but there's some shots that they obviously had to redo or do it on a soundstage and it's like man come on like you have so much money it's the same one I can tell that something's been 80 yard I get so frustrated with that because it's like you're not some cheap like weekly soap opera you're Marvel you're Disney make it sound better well, the ADR thing I can I can kind of understand because you know those the those those boom mics that they have you know on set they can only pick up so much and it's not always going to sound great but but yeah the uh, that's why I'm I'm a little surprised that Marvel hasn't yet gone the route of Lucasfilm and gotten the big I forgot what it's called the big circular thing like they film all their stuff on now like the Mandalorian the big circular soundstage kind of thing where you can actually project the images on there and film them. Suddenly, the water in the canal erupts into a giant water creature that starts attacking the city. Peter prompts Ned to lead everyone else away, both for their own safety and so they don't witness Peter, who has his web shooters but left his spider suit at the hotel, using his powers to fight the creature. He follows the creature on its rampage through the Grand Canal, but is powerless to do anything about it. It's about to smash into the Rialto Bridge when the mysterious figure from the beginning of the film appears and begins fighting the creature with superhuman abilities. Peter helps the figure by drawing the creature away from the city and back towards the canal, although he is unable to keep St. Mark's Campanile from toppling over, despite his best efforts. The figure defeats the creature and, after being hailed with applause from the crowd, flies away. Excuse me, sir. I can help. I'm really strong and I'm sticky. Okay. I have a question. Are the Sokovia Accords still in play here, or did that all just go out the window during and after the blip? I mean, in theory, we're also still dealing with the GRC, and I imagine if Peter was out here in his Spider-Man suit biting some giant water monster in Italy, they'd want to know what's going on. Granted, there's a lot more trouble on the horizon for Peter, but still. Well, admittedly, this, is a, this, is, this was a retcon, but... Spoiler alert, we learn in She-Hulk that the Sokovia Accords were rescinded sometime after Infinity War. They don't give a whole lot of details, but hopefully that answers your question. When did She-Hulk... Oh, well, okay. So sometime after Infinity War, during the blip. Sometime after... Well, sometime after Infinity War, whether it was during the blip or after Endgame, we don't know. But they just... They, they make reference... They make reference in She-Hulk that the Sokovia Accords were rescinded. But we don't know when that happened. We don't know if it happened during the blip or after the blip. Because She-Hulk takes place, I think, roughly... Well, I'll have to look at the timeline again, and that will help figure out when we're going to review it. I think She-Hulk takes place roughly a year after Endgame. So it could have happened during the blip. It could have happened during that year. They haven't established that yet. Hopefully we'll get that uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future. Because, frankly, I'd like to know, too. There is that new book that just came out, the official timeline of the MCU. My copy is uh, hopefully waiting for me at the bookstore. But it is the sacred timeline that they're following, for all of you Loki fans out there. 
That night, the class are hanging out in the hotel lobby watching TV coverage of the attack and speculating on who this new hero, being dubbed by many as Mysterio, is. Peter calls May and gets quietly chided for not having his suit with him during all the action, but she also offers encouragement in his plan for MJ. Something that doesn't get talked about much is that we actually learn a surprising amount about Flash in this movie. He's a Spider-Man stan, and unapologetically so, we all know that, so, so much that his overwrought desire to look cool actually gets put on hold when he fanboys out about Spider-Man. And yes, I really do enjoy the irony of him spewing all those, all of those, you know, banal platitudes about how wonderful and virtuous Spider-Man is. And then he sees Peter and he's like, what's up, dickwad? I thought you drowned. I like Flash. I think it's funny. And I, that is 100% what people do, though. They talk about how great and beautiful and perfect some, somebody else is that they don't have any real knowledge of. And then they turn around and act like jerks. And it's not just that. He's also he's talking about how he yeah, I really respect him. He's a, he stands up for the neighborhood and he does this and he's a real upstanding guy. And then he looks at Peter and is like, what's up, dickwad? But you're stupid. I know you've already talked about um, one of the quotes from the teachers, but I love these two teachers, uh, Dell and Harrington. Um, another great one-liner from Dell is when Harrington asks what he think the, thinks the monster is. And he goes, given that I'm a man of science, it's witches. I'll have more to say about uh, Harrington and Dell later on in the show. I, I do. They, they, I think they get more screen time here than they do in the other two movies, and it's great. I think they're, I think they're very, very good in this film. They're very funny. Peter and Ned are talking in their room when a tranquilizer dart suddenly knocks Ned out. Nick Fury reveals himself. Despite a series of comical interruptions from Harrington, Dell, and Betty, Fury briefs Peter on the Mexico incident and a similar incident three days later in Morocco. He also gives him a pair of sunglasses left for him by Tony. Fury then takes him to a secret bunker and introduces him to Maria Hill, some guy named Dimitri, and Mr. Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio. Beck tells Peter that he's from an alternate Earth in an alternate dimension in the multiverse. He explains that the creatures that have been attacking this Earth are elementals, formed near a black hole and composed of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. They attacked Beck's earth several years earlier, all but destroying it. He was a member of the force assigned to combat them. He came to this earth and destroyed the earth, air, and water elementals, but the fire one is still here, and they estimate that it will be in Prague in about 48 hours. Fury wants Peter to help them destroy it. Peter declines, feeling he's unqualified and fearing he'll be outed as if Spider-Man is seen in Europe while his class is there. Despite the apparent unavailability of other heroes, Fury lets Peter go so his class trip can continue on to Paris the following day. I remember going, huh? When Fury says, don't invoke her name, when Peter mentions Captain Marvel. More on that much later. Oh, I was going to ask you if you'd seen the bloopers. For this scene. For this particular scene? I probably have and just don't remember them. They are a disaster. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Holland cannot work together. It, it, it's a mess. Like, the two of them cannot do anything together. And it's mostly this scene and then the scene at the pub. And right, it's I'll have to so go. funny. I'll have, to go, I'll have to go look that up. Do I, I know I have this on. You should include all of this, by the way. This should all stay in the show. 
Yeah, I just wanted to see if I couldn't remember if I picked this up on 4K, and I do. I do have it on 4K, so the bloopers are probably on there. But also, Sweet. Earth 616. Uh, even I know those numbers. Yeah, there's that's it's it's a it's a it's a nice little Easter egg. Yeah. Also, you're not going to quote Nick Fury's. Please, you've been to space. I know, but that was an accident. I was going to let you do that. Well, but I won't say the curse word. You could say the curse word. Bitch, please. You've been to space. I know, but that was an accident. <laughs> that is a very funny line. And that is very on brand as very on brand for very on brand for Nick Fury, <laughs> despite what we find out about Nick Fury later on in the movie. The class wakes up the following morning, preparing to depart Venice for Paris, when Mr. Harrington announces that the travel company gave him a surprise upgrade, and they are now going, of all places, to Prague in a transit van chauffeured by Dimitri. I think Nick Fury just hijacked our summer vacation. <laughs> I think that's a great line, too. I also like on the drive up how even Dimitri is shaking his head at Flash recording a video for his YouTube channel or whatever. As the van makes its way through Austria, Peter tries out Tony's sunglasses. Turns out they are actually an interface with Edith, an AI that grants Peter access to all of Tony's protocols. Edith, of course, standing for even dead, I'm the hero. From the back of the van, Peter looks at each of the occupants of the van and can see whatever they're doing on their phones, mostly texting. He wants to see who MJ is texting to, but stops himself. And then again, we you know this this bit with Flash that we we that we get these inf- little bits of we get with Flash in this movie, you know Peter sees him texting mother. I have not heard from you or father in several days, and it just kind of you know it's kind of just said and whatever all the other text messages are like really innocuous kind of things. And then we see flashes, and it's you expect something where he's talking to a friend about his footage he's filmed or his whatever channel, and here it is this kind of somewhat serious text uh, to his mom that's the same as the flash kind of that we saw in andrew garfield's version mm-hmm. that he was this jerk and he was a total you know jerk <laughs> um richard yeah but then you know after ben dies in that version he's like suddenly really soft and sweet so you know something else is going on there the van stops at a restaurant slash pub in a small village in Austria for a pit stop. Dimitri guides Peter to an empty portion of the building where another agent, a rather attractive woman, orders Peter to change into a new suit that she's made for him so that Spider-Man won't be seen in Europe. As Peter is removing his pants in front of her, Brad accidentally walks in, thinking it's the bathroom. He snaps a photo of Peter's compromising position and threatens to show it to MJ, believing that she needs to know the truth about him hooking up with random European chicks. After the bus resumes its trip, Peter summons Edith in an attempt to get her to delete the picture from Brad's phone, but he accidentally orders a drone strike on Brad. Unable to cancel it, Peter distracts the van occupants long enough to destroy the drone without being seen doing so, though he is seen by one girl accidentally knocking out Flash in the process. Edith then deletes the photo from Brad's phone. This film continues to do one of the few things that I thought Homecoming did do well. Show audiences, comedically, Peter dealing with what the comics often refer to as the Parker luck. The repeated freak occurrences that happen to Peter as he tries to maintain both his personal and his superhero life. That Peter's problems follow him wherever he goes. 
Peter needs those training wheels back on from the first movie. Whatever that babysitting protocol was, bring it back. Training wheels protocol. The group arrives in Prague, and Peter is almost immediately summoned by Fury. The fire elemental is expected to strike Prague that night, and the plan is for Peter and Beck to stop it at all costs, preferably before it has a chance to touch metal and start drawing energy from the Earth's core. Obviously distracted, Peter points out that he's concerned about the safety of his friends, which Fury calls out in light of Peter nearly killing them with the drone strike earlier in the day. He then rips into Peter, telling him he's not ready to inherit what Tony has given him. Again, first time I saw this, I was like, did Nick Fury really just dress Peter down in front of all those people? Also running through my head when I first saw this, I was like, what's going on here? In the comics, Mysterio is a bad guy. Hmm. It is kind of weird. I mean, we obviously know. But how space, you know, we've had so many issues with outer space and people coming from outer space. And Fury's just like, yeah, this guy, he's cool. Checks out. Mm -hmm. Which we know at the end of this movie. We figure out why. But like, why? That doesn't make any sense. can't just trust some random dude after half of the universe has been blipped by someone from space by an alien i guess beck's a little different because he's human just in another universe but come on this is yes notable most notably this is the first mention of the multiverse in the marvel cinematic marvel cinematic universe peter retreats to the roof to be alone beck follows him up to check on him peter explains to him his disappointment at having to abandon his plan with MJ and his fear for the safety of his friends. Beck lends a sympathetic ear, acknowledging the really difficult balancing act Peter is trying to perform, being a hero while simultaneously looking out for himself. Peter tells Beck that he's glad to have someone to talk about superhero stuff with. As Peter leaves, he asks Edith for a way to keep his friends inside that evening, even as they prepare to go to Carnival. Upon Peter's return to the hotel, Harrington learns that the opera has unexpectedly gifted front row tickets to that night's performance to the entire class. So instead of going to the biggest party in the world, they will now be attending a four-hour opera. MJ nonchalantly invites Peter to sit next to her after he goes to purchase a pair of opera glasses for them to share. But instead of getting the glasses, Peter makes a quick exit to go fight the fire elemental, asking Ned to cover for him. Brad locks eyes with Peter and flips him the bird as Peter leaves the theater. MJ notices Peter leaving, so she follows him out. Betty sees her leave and assumes she's bailing on the opera to go to Carnival, so she grabs a very reluctant Ned and drags him out of the theater. You know, I miss a lot of things about my youth, but I do not miss all that teen hormonal crap. (laughs) Tangentially related to that, one thing that puzzles me about this movie and I never noticed it until this particular rewatch, is this plot thread involving Ned pressuring Peter about his superheroing? A little while ago, he was like, just remember, we're all counting on you, Peter. And now, you know, here at the Opera House, he's like, just be sure to lead the creature away from the Opera House. Ned is one of the few people who knows Peter's secret and is, or at least should be, aware of the kind of stress he's under. Why would Ned, of all people... Lay all this on Peter right now. Well, we're not really in the neighborhood anymore, and the stakes are way higher than they used to be. 
I don't think it's surprising that Ned's perspective and Peter's would probably change. Betty and Ned arrive at Carnival and board a Ferris wheel. MJ is then seen wandering around on her own. Peter, now wearing the black stealth suit given to him by Fury, is watching from overhead. Like clockwork, the fire elemental attacks Carnival and everyone scatters. Everyone, that is, except Betty and Ned, who are now trapped at the top of the Ferris wheel. It is pretty impressive how quickly everyone got out of there. Like, that's what, the biggest party in the world, they said, and it is empty, except for Betty and Ned. Betty, Betty, Ned, and, uh, yes, uh, Peter and and Beck, yes, they did clear out very, very quickly. What's the opposite of what we've been talking about, the dopamine hit? It's the adrenaline hit. When the adrenaline hit, you get out real quick. Exit, stage left. Peter and Beck attack the creature. Beck shooting it with his beam thingies, and Peter turning fire hydrants on it and hurling pieces of collapsed building at it with his webs. But the creature grows larger as it absorbs metal from objects such as cars and other structures. Peter tries to keep it away from the Ferris wheel. In the process, a piece of debris attached to one of his webs lands in an alley where MJ is hiding. A piece of metal scaffolding falls onto the creature, thus making it grow even larger than before. With seemingly no other options, Beck builds up a mass of the green energy that he uses, charges the creature, and makes it explode. Somehow, Beck survives, and Fury asks him to accompany him and Hill to Europol HQ in Berlin the next day to discuss preparing for future threats. Fury tells Peter that he'd like him to join them in Berlin also, but that Peter has to first decide whether or not he wants to step up. Peter and Beck have a sit-down in a nearby bar. Peter notes that he's under 21, but I just read that the drinking age in the Czech Republic is 18. Also, no one in Europe cares if teenagers drink, so (laughs) there's that. (laughs) (laughs) After Peter recites his litany of responsibilities that he feels are weighing him down, Beck asks him what he wants. Peter responds that he wants to rejoin his class on their trip and continue his plan to woo MJ. He then decides that Beck should be the next Tony Stark instead of him, and transfers control of Edith over to Beck, despite Beck's protests. A relieved Peter then leaves the bar to look for MJ. Moments later, much of the interior of the bar vanishes, revealing much of what we saw earlier to be a holographic illusion. Beck and the rest of the bar patrons are actually disgruntled ex-Stark employees, Beck designed the holographic system that Tony renamed Binarily Augmented Retroframing, or BARF, see Captain America Civil War, and turned it into a self-help therapy program before firing Beck for being unstable. Also present are William, the guy Obadiah Stane yelled at in front of the arc reactor way back in Iron Man, who built weaponized drones that were integrated with Beck's holographic technology to create the illusions and real damage we saw during what we now realize to have been staged attacks by the Elementals, Guterman, who invented Beck's multiversal origin story, Victoria, who arranged the electromagnetic pulses at each of the Elementals' attack sites to sell the illusion to Fury's satellites, and Janice, who discovered that Edith was being transferred to Peter. Beck says that in this day and age, even if you're the smartest person of the room, no one will listen to you unless you're wearing a cape or shooting lasers from your hands. And that's why he's doing what he's doing, to make Mysterio the greatest hero ever. 
First of all, I love how Peter is able to convince himself that Tony's note with the Edith glasses to the next Tony Stark could somehow be meant for someone other than him. That's just uh, kind of the epitome of wishful thinking, I suppose. Second, was Beck really sure that Peter would give him Edith? Did he have a backup plan in case Peter didn't? Finally, this crew that Beck has assembled, they may all be really smart people in terms of scientific smarts or business smarts or whatever, but they think Tony was a self-centered tyrant, and yet they're willing to follow this guy, who seems to have made it very clear that he's a megalomaniac? I don't know. I just, I just sometimes don't get people at all. Tony was just the wrong type of self-centered megalomaniac tyrant. Like, read any nonfiction book about geopolitics or even businesses, and the person who replaces the baddie that everyone apparently hated is always just as bad, if not worse, than the first guy. My question is, though, why would Peter pick a literal stranger? Beck just showed up. Peter has no knowledge about him besides the past few hours, and now he gets to be the new Tony Stark? As far as Peter knows, which is not what we know as a viewer, Beck barely knows anything about Tony, or what happened on Earth, or with the other Avengers. I, I think about that, and I, I tell myself a couple things. First of all, Peter is still just in, not in real time, but in essentially, he's essentially, uh, you know, what, 16, 15, 16? So he still has the maturity, the emotional maturity of that of that age. And he probably just... But Tony he's, thought... He's so well, desperate... Tony thought highly enough of him to give him the glasses, and we know that Tony meant that it was for him. I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that after everything that's happened, maybe Peter really is questioning his ability and or his desire to be doing this. Maybe this could just be, this could be self-doubt. This could be... Oh, this sure. Could be, of course. You know, lack I of just, confidence, too. And it why could, Beck when we don't know anything about him? Like, give it a week, babe. Like, solve the <laughs> elemental problem and then think on it. Take a nap. Brush your okay. teeth. Come, coming from someone, coming from someone who's very good at you know passing the buck and kicking the can down the road. There's a part of me that kind of understands that. If you want to get out of something bad enough, you'll pass it off to anyone if you're desperate enough. Peter returns to the hotel to find out that the rest of the class trip has been canceled, and that they are flying home tomorrow. With his timetable now unexpectedly accelerated, Peter invites MJ to walk with him outside. She tells him that she knows he's Spider-Man. Peter denies it vehemently, but then asks her if she only followed him around because she thought he was Spider-Man. She tells him yes. She produces a piece of debris found from the site of the battle earlier that evening that is covered in the same type of webbing used by Spider-Man. And that's how she deduced that Peter is Spider-Man. Peter examines the debris and discovers that it is a holographic projector, which then projects an image of Mysterio fighting the air elemental, thus revealing Beck's deception. Peter admits to MJ that he is, in fact, Spider-Man, which actually shocks her because she says she was only about 67% sure. One thing I do really like about this movie, and I'm not sure if I'll be able to actually communicate what I'm thinking, but it's how well it captures fake news, and how stories can sort of spiral out of control. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is partially because we know Beck is all made up at this point, 
And partially because just before Peter and MJ leave, there's a newscast in um, Czech, I presume, is what they speak in Prague, um, mm-hmm. talking about Mysterio and Night Monkey. Night Monkey. No one knows who Night Monkey is. Night Monkey literally only just started existing that night during the fight, and the news just picks it up. Like, yeah, Europe's got to knock off Spider-Man. Always had him. And I think that's the whole thing about fake news is that it's actually kind of real. Like, Beck is a liar and the elementals are fake, but the destruction is real. The, you know, the deaths and the fear that it's causing are real. And Night Monkey is fake, but there is also a black clad version of Spider-Man just hanging out in Prague. It's kind of the idea that every lie has a kernel of truth, I guess. If I may jump ahead a little, we hear Beck saying, essentially, people will believe what you what they want to believe or even what you want, or even in some circumstances, they'll believe what you want them to believe. I think I think that's a very a big undercurrent of this film is, yeah, kind of perception and the framing of the story. Because the you can tell people the same set of facts. You know, and we see this all the time in regular life. We've seen it, you know, for years. It Even before 24-hour news and before the internet, like, this has always been a thing where... Two people can be told the same story, but if it's told with this inflection or with this tone or with these words, you end up with two totally different beliefs about what and why it happened. Almost like it's as if it were two different stories. Yeah, I think the delivery of information and the perception of information are definitely themes in this movie. I don't think they were... I I agree with you. I don't think they were articulated as well as they could have been. Um, I think... Oh, I was saying that I wasn't sure I could articulate what I was talking about. Because I, I, well, I think you. Have, I think you they may... did it well in the story. You think so? Because I think, I it's, think so. it's 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 touched upon, but it's not a big theme. Marvel Marvel tends not to. While yes, well, Marvel Comics would certainly touch on this sort of thing. I have the feeling the, oh, the Marvel no. cinematic the Marvel cinematic universe tends not to bury itself too well, much. Well, because in they have to appeal to the masses. If you go too hard on a story or if you make things too uncomfortable, people don't want to face it and they yeah. won't go see it. With a few exceptions, like, you know, Black Panther and maybe Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I find it oddly comforting that MJ was able to piece together that Peter is Spider-Man from all of the same blindingly obvious clues that everyone else has conveniently not seen or properly processed. You know, Spider-Man's presence in Washington, D.C. and Homecoming. Peter's oddly timed disappearances when weird stuff goes down and then Spider-Man magically shows up. I'm sure many members of the audience see these things and wonder, how can nobody see that he's Spider-Man? It's so obvious. Beck and his team continue to develop and practice their next deception, an attack on London that will cause many casualties, thanks to William's drones now controlled by Edith, but will allow Beck as Mysterio to establish himself as a savior. Beck discovers that one of the drones was damaged during the incident in Prague and that MJ is now possession of a piece of it, a piece that can demonstrate what Beck is really doing. So if it wasn't already clear to Beck's followers that he's a loony, him threatening to kill them all should have clued them in. I love when we get to see actors pretending to be actors. For some reason, it always makes me laugh. It feels a little fourth wallish. You mean like Beck? Yeah. Like watching Beck pretend to be Mysterio. It, this, it's funny. This is for my family. <laughs> yeah, all that. Like, I think that's just really funny, especially because it's like a bad a bad version of themselves. Like, that's the only th- way actors know how to do it is they're mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to be bad. 
Fury calls him on it. Pardon the swearing, but you know, when Fury goes, that there's some bullshit. <laughs> Back at the hotel, Peter, MJ, and Ned, who now knows that MJ is in on the whole Spider-Man secret, discuss Peter and MJ's discovery. Peter can't call Fury because he assumes his phone is now tapped by Beck, so he dons the night monkey suit and literally hops on a train to Berlin to talk to Fury personally. Fury drives Peter to a security complex where Peter briefs Fury and Hill on what Beck has been up to. He's about to tell Fury who else he's told when he suddenly senses Beck's presence. Hill and the entire building turn out to be a hologram, and one of Beck's drones shoots Fury. Peter finds himself being manipulated and tossed about in an unending torrent of holographic illusions. Just when it seems like it's over, Peter tells Fury that he told MJ and Ned, who may have told Betty, about Beck's plan. Fury then reveals himself to actually be Beck, and that he needs to go kill Peter's friends. Peter is then promptly hit by a high-speed train. We'll talk about this in greater detail towards the end of the show, but I wanted to take a moment now to acknowledge how truly dangerous Quentin Beck is. Granted, he can't manipulate reality in the same way as, say, Wanda Maximoff can, but that doesn't make him any less dangerous. How do you deal with someone who makes you unable to trust your to even trust your very surroundings if no way home hadn't been released by the time that we did top five saddest that that episode this scene and the following scene with happy would have made my top five like talk about trauma peter wakes up in a daze in a jail cell in brook up langedike in the netherlands my dutch is not so great my dutch is for bike racing (laughs) <laughs> which which is more Dutch than I I don't know, know any so. other Dutch except for bike racing Dutch. But also, I love these Dutch guys. They're pretty funny. That's a, that's a I mean, that, that whole scene seems almost like a non sequitur, but it's quite amusing. Peter places a call to an unknown party, telling them that he really screwed up and that he needs to be picked up. A short while later, a Stark jet lands in a tulip garden, and Happy Hogan emerges. As Happy patches his injuries, Peter flagellates himself for trusting Beck and giving him Edith, and putting him in a position to hurt his friends and lots of other people. He comes clean with Happy about feeling the constant pressure to live up to Tony. Happy tells Peter that despite second-guessing almost everything else in his life, Tony was absolutely certain that Peter was the right person to entrust his tech to. Reinvigorated, Peter uses Happy's phone to find Flash's vid channel, in which he reveals that the class has gone to London. He then starts using the computer on board the jet to make himself a new spider suit. Aww, happy looking at him and Peter looking like Tony in that stupid song. It's so cute. I love Led Zeppelin. You're the head of security and your password is password? Look, I don't feel good about it either. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. We we have we have sort of gotten up. An interesting picture of of Happy as a security specialist in the MCU, and yeah, he he's I think his ability is somewhat dubious at times, shall we say? But he always comes through in a pinch. Happy, Happy always comes through when you really really need him to. Fury and Hill pick up an EM disturbance in London just as the class, sans Peter, who went to Berlin to visit relatives per Aunt May, arrives in that same city. They board a double-decker tour bus, unaware that it's being driven by Guterman. We then see Mysterio flying around London, claiming to be looking for more elementals or other threats for Fury. In reality, 
Beck is on top of the tower bridge orchestrating the manufactured EM pulses, the launching of Stark drones toward the city, and the targeting of Fury, Hill, MJ, Ned, and Betty by way of Edith. And, by the way, the bus is driving across said tower bridge. Your boy called it the London Bridge, but I figured it out. (laughs) Fury then receives a call from Happy, who says he was cleaning out Tony's stuff when he found a surfboard belonging to Tony. Happy says folks there didn't think Fury was a surfer, to which Happy responded, Appearances can be deceiving. Fury angrily hangs up on him, but then stares at Hill. Back on the Stark jet, which is approaching the English coast, Happy tells Peter that Fury got his encoded message, and that Flash's posts are indicating that the class is on the Tower Bridge. Upon arriving in London, the plan is for Happy to rescue Peter's friends while Peter works his way inside of Beck's illusions and tries to take back Edith with the help of his Peter Tingle, which may or may not be working now. First of all, Happy seems awfully confident that Fury got his message. Second, returning to what we were talking about earlier, these idiots working for Beck, they just seem so damn chipper, despite the fact that their boss threatened to kill them, and that they're all about to be accessories to mass murder. I can't help but think that there's some sort of not-so-subtle message about corporate culture being woven into this story. Am I wrong? I mean, power corrupts and all that. These guys felt like they had been stripped of their power, and now there's someone who can give it back to them. And none of it's real, of course, so you can ignore the harm that's caused because it's no big deal if the outcome's fame and glory. You know, like, who cares about a couple hundred, couple thousand people dead? You know, they're not real. It's not real. It's all pretend. I want a job. Yeah. Beck's new hologram and drone-driven elemental, this time a horrifying combination of earth, air, fire, and water, attacks London focusing on the Tower Bridge, where Gruderman has conveniently left the class and their bus. As the group tries to move away from the destruction, Mysterio arrives and begins attacking the Elemental. MJ and Ned recognize that Beck knows that they know about his plan, and that they are still in danger as a result. So they try to move the group along quickly. Beck urges Fury to clear out, but Fury, now on to Beck's deception, calmly tells them that he never leaves his men behind. I love how Dell's like, the joining forces the joining forces like the Power Rangers, and Harrington says, You mean Voltron? I like that at first your voice went a little Stan a little Stanley before you corrected it. Stanley? Yeah. That's what I you know, maybe I should make that a feature I should make that a feature on the show. I have like I have like Stan Stan saying something in the podcast. They're joining forces like the Power Rangers. Or maybe Voltron or something like that. I could have written those I could have written those comics. Excelsior. Peter, wearing the newly constructed spider suit, does a type of halo jump from the jet into the heart of Beck's illusion and begins systematically destroying the drones from within, making the holographic projection begin to fall apart. Beck orders the hologram dropped altogether and sends the drones after Peter. Except for the one drone that he sends after Fury, which leads to one of the most like stoic Banff moments in a while for him when the drone locks on to Fury and he goes you got me and Hill shoots it down I got you it's so cool I want to be that cool you are that cool mm, no you're already that cool you're already not, that cool Emily I would not be cool enough to stare down a drone that's gonna shoot me sorry I'd be running the other way okay it's now a matter of public record I would trust I would trust my life 
to your ability to be able to shoot down a oh, no, I could, drone. Oh, no, I could shoot down launcher. the drone, but I couldn't stare it down. That's the problem. I'd rather be the sniper up on the roof. I don't want to oh, be okay. up there. Oh, I think they're both cool. Well, yeah, okay, no, I that's still... why I think they're both cool. Like, I think Fury is cooler because Fury's the one who could die. Hill won't die. She's up on the roof. She's fine. I don't know. There's a lot of drones flying around there. Happy lands the jet near the Tower of London and finds the kids, but the jet is blown up seconds later. He leads the kids into the Tower of London and into the vault where the crown jewels are housed. But Beck sends a drone in after them. Peter continues to destroy drones, swinging over and around the bridge while webbing them up. When he runs out of web fluid, he uses the parts of a downed drone to construct a weapon that allows him to destroy several more drones, while simultaneously propelling him up into the corridor in the upper part of the bridge where Beck is. Oh, no, no. What he does is grab the tower bridge sign and a piece of drone and hold them each like a shield and hammer because Marvel loves the throwback, even if that throwback only happened a couple years ago. A couple of years? In movie time, try six months. In our time, two months. <laughs> Either way, you know, Marvel will go back Marvel will go back to the well till it's bone dry. I think we all know that by now. I guess I was thinking about the fact that in our actual reality, you and me, it has been a a quick minute <laughs> since we've seen Endgame. <laughs> uh yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm trying to I th- I don't think I've seen Endgame since we watched it for this. He throws a punch at Beck and destroys his control helmet but the Edith glasses are still intact. Beck uses them to project an illusion of darkness in the hallway, concealing himself and the drones from Peter. Peter centers himself and wills the Peter Tingle to come back. With it, he is able to locate and destroy each of the drones in the hallway, thus stopping the holographic projection. In the ensuing melee, Beck is shot by one of the drones. Peter sees him lying wounded on the floor and confronts him. Peter suddenly reaches out to his right, and we hear a gunshot. The image of Beck lying on the floor vanishes, and we see Peter holding the arm of the real Beck, pistol in hand, who attempted to shoot Peter from the holographic concealment. His little face. (laughs) He's so young and so sad. This is such a good moment, and I think... I don't remember when Tom Holland started to do, like... I called them big kid roles... You know, where he was playing, like, darker characters that were a little bit older. But I think it was around this time. And once I saw that, I was thinking, like, okay, he can do this. Like, he can be tormented and, you know, sad and traumatized and dark. But remember, there was a time where you had a hard time reconciling that. When you they showed him, what was it? Remember, you were talking about them, about seeing a trailer. Because he's just him. a little baby. Yeah, he's baby. Yeah, yeah. You say yeah, you can't. He can't be smoking. He's baby. He's just a little baby. And we got, we got, we got, the, we got the Texas draw. The way you said it, it was very, it was very amusing. He's just a little baby. Before Beck falls to the floor, Peter grabs the glasses and puts them on. Edith asks him if she should execute all cancellation protocols for the drones. To which Peter responds, do it, execute them all. The remaining drones retreat to the Stark satellite from where they originated, thus saving Happy and the kids, Fury and Hill, and everyone else in London. Peter turns to the dying Beck and asks him how he could do all of this. Beck replies, 
People need to believe, and nowadays they'll believe anything. And then Beck dies. We then see William downloading data from the drones onto his phone before hurrying away. This whole sequence, starting with Peter fighting all the drones at the bridge and ending with this confrontation with Beck, I think it just it just freaking rocks. It, it's the highest stakes fight Peter's ever been in thus far without help from other Avengers. He's flying around the bridge, webbing this and that, flipping around again. I love the I love the slow-mo parts. I know it's kind of some people probably think it's kind of cheesy, but I still think it looks cool. I may not be the biggest Spider-Man fan, but this is what I want to see from a Spider-Man movie. And going back to the going back to the homemade shield and hammer thing, this is a classic demonstration of Peter's smarts and ingenuity. The audience is gradually starting to see that Tony's choice of Peter Parker to somehow carry on his legacy makes sense. Peter and MJ reunite on the deserted bridge with wrecked cars strewn all around. Peter tells her that he likes her. MJ admits that she wasn't just following Peter around to see if he was Spider-Man, and she has difficulty getting close to people. And then they kiss. I really like this scene with the necklace and them finally being open with each other, mostly because I think I'm kind of like MJ, and I would 100% have a favorite flower because it's a famous brutal murder. Like, the Black Dahlia is a pretty flower, I guess, but it's even better since it's associated with some wild, unsolved, famous murder. I think MJ and I would get along pretty well. Oh, I don't doubt that in the least. You, you, have, you definitely exude shades of MJ. Fury and Hill meet with Happy briefly when Fury insists on speaking to Peter, and emboldened Happy tells Fury that Peter will call him. Sometime later, the class and Peter... Did he fly back with them? I had a hard time figuring that out. Return no, to the did. U.S. He did fly back with them? Because they all, all right. came out of the... They all came out of the airport at the same time. Okay, I, I kind of figured. It just... Yeah. Because it's like, he wasn't supposed to be... Peter, Peter wasn't supposed to be in London anyway, so I wonder if there was sort of a thing... Where he had to explain, oh, I thought I would join you guys in London or something like that. Well, here's the deal. I don't think there are many direct flights from Berlin, air quotes. (laughs) To Newark, New Jersey? To New York. To Newark, New Jersey? I don't think there are. There may be. There probably are. There's probably like one a day. Newark's a huge airport. It's much easier to get from London to Newark, though. Either way, Peter and them return to the U.S. Peter and MJ are now a couple. Ned and Betty have broken up. And Flash is disappointed to learn that his mother did not accompany their chauffeur to pick him up from the airport. I still think this Flash thing is so fascinating. Peter confronts May and Happy about their relationship. Happy says that they're dating. May says that it's a summer fling. Later, Peter meets MJ in Manhattan and takes her web swinging. I love that he's texting and web swinging at the same time. He does that a couple times in the movie, doesn't he? Yeah. Like you see, he's taking all the selfies of him while he's swinging and then like flipping the phone to the other hand in midair. Peter meets MJ near that bridge in front of Grand Central where the Avengers fought the Chitari in the Battle of New York. Avengers, nay Stark Tower, is not far from there. When Peter lands, you see a big construction fence with the with these uh, numbers inside circles and with arrows going from one circle to the next one. And the caption above that diagram reads, we're so excited to show you what comes next. The first number in a circle is a one, and then there's an arrow, and then the number two, and then another arrow, then a number three, and another arrow, but then it stops with a question mark and not a four. 
Could this be a hint that there's a building going up and that it could have something to do with the number four? Come on, Marvel Comics fans. Are you thinking the Baxter building? Are you thinking, you know, the first family of Marvel, the number four? I'm just saying. And then the main credits roll. Vacation, by the way, is like my second favorite Go-Go's song. Always happy to hear it. I was thinking about singing again, but I won't. Yeah, if we play the, yeah, if we play the, if we play the Whitney Houston thing, are we gonna get in trouble? No, no, we shouldn't. You should totally. We totally. We will play not it. get in trouble. I promise. I've taken copyright law. I know what counts. In a mid-credits scene, Peter drops MJ off outside Madison Square Garden when a breaking news story comes on one of the giant TV screens outside. An anonymous source has purported to provide news outlets with a video which they show, of Beck on his deathbed claiming that Spider-Man attacked him with a fleet of drones and with clearly doctored footage of Spider-Man ordering the drones to attack London. The anchor then cuts over to thedailybugle.net, a controversial website run and hosted by none other than J. Jonah Jameson, with J.K. Simmons reprising the role from the Tobey Maguire movies. Jameson shows a final piece of footage, Quentin Beck's alleged final words in which he tells the world that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. A picture of Peter is then put up on the screen for the whole world to see. This freaking Tucker Carlson, Alex Jones, mealy mouth looking idiot. Ugh. If there's one thing any world's gonna have, it's guys like this. But if you're gonna have it, it might as well be J.K. Simmons playing J. Jonah Jameson because he just does it too damn well. In a post credit scene, we see Nick Fury and Maria Hill driving. They then reveal themselves to actually be the Skrulls Soren and Talos, last seen in Captain Marvel. Soren tells her husband that he has to tell Fury what happened. Talos is embarrassed that he, a shapeshifter, was also fooled by Beck's deception. He reluctantly calls Fury and tells him he gave the glasses to Peter as he was instructed but that everything then went off the rails and that Fury needs to come back. We cut to Fury, who hangs up on Talos and is then revealed to be commanding a large group of scrolls somewhere in space. Nick Fury's storyline to be continued in Secret Invasion, and that's all I'll say. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors, starting with Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. Um, as I've said... Already, I do really like Tom Holland. I think really, <laughs> obviously, this you don't say. Obviously, this came out gosh, like five years ago now almost three, uh, four, four and a half, four and some change, almost four and change. And he's what 27 now, so he's had St- still a baby, he's had like he has grown up. Like, Tom Holland has grown up since then. Like, since being Spider-Man, even since uh, No Way Home, um, he's grown up. But I thought he did really well in this because, again, like I said, this is him sort of taking his first steps into not being, you know, oh, yeah, Mr. Stark. Like, the kind of kid that you didn't like in the first movie. Like, the kind of teenager that you felt was kind of annoying and abrasive. And now he's into this, like, you know, nobody can get through life without a little bit of trauma. And 
you know, Peter Parker gets a lot more trauma than most people because he's a superhero. Because and because he's and Peter Parker. Because he's Peter Parker. So it's fun, I think, to watch not only Peter Parker grow, but Tom Holland grow and sort of realize what kind of characters he wants to play. Because I think especially when you're younger, like you have that chance to sort of play around with different kind of characters. You know, we were talking this morning about Sebastian Stan auditioning for Captain America. And at that point, there is no way that he would have been a good Cap. He had already played so many dark, kind of sad boy roles. But like, he's there. That's what he does. That's who he is. For the for the audience's benefit, just FYI, I'm referring... Emily and I were earlier, we were texting each other <clears throat> about... Uh, I'm listening to the audiobook version of a new... <laughs> unauthorized tell-all book about the history of the MCU entitled... Here's a plug. The Unauthorized Story of the MCU. Hold on just a second. It's, it is called uh, MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios by... I can't read it with my... Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards. And I'm listening, so I'm listening to this audiobook the audiobook version of this book right now it's fascinating i mean it's so so far it sounds it sounds pretty it sounds pretty accurate it's jiving with everything i've heard so far and it does kind of de- it isn't it's not like a total homer of a book there are some there are some um you can tell there's some things that they're kind of you know aspects of of marvel that that might not be as flattering and they they go into some of that so far and yeah they're talking about how sebastian stan uh, you know, Sebastian Stan auditioned for for Steve Rogers. Wyatt Russell auditioned for Steve Rogers. I, that I didn't know. It was his first professional audition. Um, you know, but what is it? Uh, what what else did I talk about? How uh, Chadwick Boseman auditioned for Drax and Lupita Nyong'o auditioned for Gamora and Karen Gillan auditioned for Sharon Carter and you know the cat. You know, Sher- what's her name? Sherry Shale- Sherry Haley Finn. I keep forgetting the casting person's name at Marvel. You know. Uh, that's you know, a, it's a great bit of the really smart casting on their part. It's like okay, they might not be appropriate for this, but they kept them in mind for other roles that they were you know, that they've ne- that have now you know they've become legendary for. As for Tom, I'm glad you said what you said because at first I wasn't sure I was going to have a whole lot to say about Tom Holland in this role, other than that you know he's just he's solid he's solid in every outing, and I you know he's consistent, and there's always something good to be said about that. And I, I wasn't sure I was going to have much else to say other than that. But Peter Parker wanted to be an Avenger. Now he is, and now he has to deal with the consequences of that without Tony Stark around to mentor him. And, you know, I think you know, you've, you've kind of made me think, yeah, you know, I think Tom really does do a good job at kind of, he very convincingly plays the, that discomfort. It's kind of like, you know, well, maybe, you know, gee, okay, I got what I wanted. I'm an Avenger now, but this is really hard. And, you know, we've been through all of this stuff and yeah, maybe maybe I'm not cut out to do this. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I don't want to do this. I don't know. And, yeah, I think he does a really good job showing sort of a more contemplative, thoughtful and, and, and you know, in that way, more mature version of Peter. Yeah. And I think it's just because he had time at that point. Like he wasn't he'd grown. You know, he was still learning how to be an actor. And he was still learning how to play different characters. And also, I mean, of course, for from the perspective of the character, you know, he's not a little kid anymore. Mm-hmm. He's been he's been to space. 
<laughs> just... Like you have to grow, even if even if you've been blipped for five years, you still have to grow and change. Mm-hmm. And he had to. I mean, he he had to. He went through a lot of stuff that no one his age should ever have to go through. Most teenagers don't help save the universe. Uh, he, for all intents and purposes, died for five years, came back. His mentor died. He fought this cataclysmic battle to save the universe, but yet he's still, you know, at the end of, and then, the, and then at the end of that, you know, you know, you have to go back to school. <laughs> you have to, you know, you know, take your history test. It's kind of how do you go from? I think there's kind of quietly an element of that in there too. How do you go from this grand adventure back to your regular life? Um, and I think that's probably very jarring for him too. He may not say that, that might not necessarily be expressed, but it's something that I kind of feel uh, in his performance. All right, let's move on to Zendaya as MJ. I liked her. I do sometimes feel, because she's a girl and it's Marvel, that she is kind of two-dimensional. You know, she does only exist to be a love interest for Peter, and so there's not much to do like all she can do is be like sarcastic and dark and nihilistic yeah i almost feel like betty had more to do than mj in this movie yeah but like i you know i love zendaya and yeah i love her in euphoria i love her for the two seconds we see of her in dune i love her here but i just don't think that there's enough to do to really have like something to say about yeah. it, I agree. Which I is mean, the she's the case with a lot of the women, but here we are. Sadly, sadly, yeah. I, I, I mean, I like her. She's she's good in this role. I enjoy watching her take on MJ. Uh, it's very, it's it's very, it's very funny in a in a unique sort of way. But you know, there's not a whole lot to to comment on. Um, you know, maybe I'll have more to say. Maybe I'll have more to say in uh, No Way Home. Jacob Batalone as Ned Leeds. Ned was kind of disappointing to me in this film. I never thought that the whole Ned Betty thing was particularly funny or entertaining. And, you know, his storyline in the movie is pretty much just that. So I don't really have a whole lot to say about about uh, Ned or Jacob. I think I'll have more to say with No Way Home. I think so, too. Yeah. I think so, too. Jake Gyllenhaal as Quentin Beck slash Mysterio. I actually just looked it up because I... Obviously, there's lots of people for me that I know their names, but I have never seen anything that they're in or really paid attention to their career. And I feel like Jake Gyllenhaal is one of those people. Like, I just don't know anything about him. I think he was in Highway, which I have but may not have watched. Like, I have the DVD, but I may not have watched it. I do did find when I was looking him up, he was a producer on The Devil All the Time, which Tom Holland is the main character of, which is a very ah. dark movie. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I can't call, recall it all, off the top of my head, but um, Jake Gyllenhaal's resume, I mean, he's a very prolific actor. Oh yeah, I mean, he's, he's been busy a for lot. a long time. Yeah, he's been busy, he's been doing this for a very long time. I mean, you know, he's been in, and he's been in some pretty notable films. I mean, we think of, you know. No, no, you know, Donnie Dark, Donnie Darko was a cult classic, and then of course, you know, uh, Brokeback Mountain, you know, was a was a critical darling. Oh you know, wait, Oscar, he Oscar was. contender. 
I haven't seen that, but I know everything about it. <laughs> so it was it was him and um, jo- Joker. What's his name? Um, God, why am I blanking on his name? Heath Ledger, wasn't it? It was the two of them, right? Yeah, I think so. I always feel in my head. I always mistakenly put Jake Gyllenhaal in a lot of movies that he's not in. I'm trying to think of one of the ones. I always put him in Fight Club for some reason. Okay. In my head, he's always in Fight Club, and he's not in Fight Club. He would be kind of appropriate for Fight Club, he though. He would be. That That's it. why I he's, think he is. He would have been a little young for Fight Club at that time, but I haven't seen a lot of his work, but I've liked the few things that he's in that I've seen. Yeah, As weird as it is, I, I do like Donnie Darko. Uh, my favorite film of his is uh, the 1999 kind of biopic of uh of uh, young homer hickam who grew up to be a, who grew up in a coal town in west virginia and went on to be a nasa engineer that I, I just realized i neglected to put the title of that film uh in the notes here it's called october sky it's just a really great piece of americana I've, i always i remember i remember seeing that in a in a in an indie film house in alexandria virginia Back in like late 1999, early 2000, was really blown away by it. Um, he's fantastic in that film. It's a lovely movie. Uh, it's, it's one of it's a, got a sort of it's got Chris Cooper in it, kind of during that period, like right before American Beauty, when Chris Cooper was heating up as a very popular actor. Uh, the film was directed by Captain America: The First Avenger director Joe Johnston, by the way. Uh, so something you might want to check out. Like Tom Holland, I think he's I think he's solid in this. I, I like I like how he plays the faux nice guy Quentin Beck, uh, but I really like him as I really like him as unhinged Beck. <laughs> I kind of like him a lot when he starts yelling. Uh, he he does he does he does crazed really well, and I don't think I've ever seen him do that before. So I was particularly um, particularly interested in that. Samuel L. Jackson as sorta Nick Fury. As I alluded to several times in the show, I remember seeing this movie and thinking, this doesn't seem like Nick Fury somehow. Imagine my relief at the end of the post-credits sequence when I realized that I was right. (laughs) Kudos to Samuel L. Jackson for nuancing his performance accordingly. He plays a Skrull pretending to be Nick Fury quite well. He altered his performance like just enough to hint to the audience that there's something amiss with outright telegraphing, I'm not Nick Fury. Uh, I think that uh, that's that's uh, that's acting. I don't think 2019 was so long ago, you know, (laughs) I don't think if I remember thinking if there was something off. I wonder if maybe in my head, because there hadn't really been a ton of Nick Fury as as the movies came out, there hadn't been a ton of Nick Fury on his own yet. Not a lot. No. So winter, I Winter Soldier. Yeah, probably... like that was it. So I don't think I even thought, like I even considered that that could have been a thing, because I don't pay attention to it really. But to, to you in the audience, f- f- just for for six hours or whatever, for, ignore the critics and ignore what what those idiots on the internet say. Check out Secret Invasion. Just 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 watch watch Secret watch Secret Invasion. I think. I think it's a much better series than it gets credit for. It's got problems, of course, but I still, if, 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 for, if for no other reason, watch it for some amazing, per, it's the best performance of, it's one of the best performances of, of Samuel L. Jackson's whole career, if you ask me. And um, we also get, you know, Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, 
Uh, there's some really good stuff in that miniseries. I really, really urge people to watch that. John Favreau as Happy Hogan. I love Happy. Who doesn't love Happy? I think he's great. Good job. And also, didn't John Favreau direct not Iron- this one, but Iron Man and Iron Man Two? Yeah. So I, I think it's actually kind of fun to have a director be an actor because like they know more of like that's why I think it's good for actors to like get into production and get oh, yeah. into directing because then you can see more of like the big picture of the show. And I think that has really helped grow happy as a character. Actors, actors who become directors, a lot of times actors love love being directed by them because they speak the same language. Yeah. You know, an actor, an actor who's a, di- a director, a director who's also an actor who or who was an actor knows what to look for, knows how to communicate with the actors to get the performance that he or she or whatever is they're looking for. Uh, it's like Jonathan, Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek The Next Generation. One of the reasons he ended up being such a great director is because he was an actor. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot to say about John Favreau and Happy. I just I love him. He's great in this film, and I like how he's kind of he's kind of matured a little bit because he's kind of been forced to because of because because Tony's gone. And there is something about that I really I really like. It's still Happy deep down in there, but he's it's kind of like he I think he understands there's a, a greater responsibility on his shoulders now to help look out for certain things, uh, looking out for Pepper. You know, looking out for Morgan, and uh, and in this case, looking out for Peter too. So I do kind of like watching the maturity of Happy, uh, especially you know post post Endgame. Kobe Smulders as Sorta Maria Hill. Uh, she really doesn't say a whole lot in this. Uh, I she's she's so taciturn anyway that Kobe Smulders didn't really have to do much to alter her performance to account for the fact that she's playing Soren, pretending to be Hill. She. Uh, she looks cool. She looks cool blowing up that drone. Uh, very, very Maria Hill. Yeah, that's about all. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, if you're, and I mean, I could say more. I could say more about her and the future of her character vis-a-vis Secret Invasion, but I won't. For reasons that will become obvious once you start watching it. Martin Starr as Mr. Harrington and J.B. Smoove as Mr. Dell. They're great. They're so funny. I, I had to. I combi- love also watching all of the interviews and things that they did because they of course always put the two of them together and mm. they just like bounce off each other so well well they're both i think they're both comedians so that that kind of that kind of makes sense I, I had to combine the two of them in this part of the show because they're just kind of inseparable in these films and we get a lot more of them in this movie than we do the other movies i think so they're yeah they're just fantastic they're funny they have great comic timing I think if if John Watts's Spider-Man films are supposed to be part Marvel, part John Hughes films, these two are brilliant at providing the the necessary clueless adult component to the Hughes aspect. Tony Revolori as Flash Thompson. Yeah. I put him in there again just because I'm really really kind of fascinated with those little hints that we get in this movie that that Flash may have some stuff going on in his family life that perhaps could portend why he is the way that he is but it, it disappoints me because you know and we'll get into this in uh you know no way home they never follow up on it as far as i know it just you're just kind of left dangling with this what's what's going on like you know you kind of get the impression that his his family is his parents are very aloof you know they they won't text him they don't show up to pick him up from the airport after this traumatic trip to europe 
And I kind of I kind of wanted more of that in the, in the next in the next Spider-Man film, and we never got it. But uh, I just kind of wanted to bring that up because I always found that fascinating. I agree. <laughs> and finally, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. We right? didn't see her much. You didn't see her very much in this one. Um, so I guess not a whole lot to say. Lots to say about Aunt May in uh, No Way Home, to say the least. And that's it for characters and actors. Miscellaneous stuff. A score by another great score by the aforementioned Michael Gacchino. I love all the European pop stuff they throw in during the uh, during the travel scenes. Anything else you have to say about this film, Emily? No, I feel like I didn't do aside from my little thing about the fake news part. I feel like I didn't really wasn't able to communicate why I liked it so much, like why I put it at number seven up there with Endgame. But I did like it. I just don't know what to say. Well, there's, yeah, I, well, it, I have a hard time articulating why I enjoy it too. There's just something, there's just something really enjoyable about this film, and sometimes maybe that's all you need. The there's vibes just, are good. The vibes are good. I just remember what you know, being fast, being you know, enthralled while I was in the theater watching it, and I left feeling good. Like, hey, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I know it was the first. And it was kind of you know, it was kind of a weird thing because I mean, it was the first movie post Endgame. Although technically it is still part of Phase Three, technically it's like the coda to Phase Three. Uh, and I guess you know it kind of it kind of made me feel made me feel very optimistic about about the future of Marvel at that point. Maybe because it was so much better than Homecoming. That could be it too. <laughs> are you and I, yeah, I'm glad you and I are in agreement on that. Yeah, Homecoming just I don't know I, it just. It just, I don't want to, you know, beat that horse to death. We already reviewed the film, but it, it just, just wasn't good. It wasn't the worst one by far, but it wasn't good. Well, so that concludes our review of Spider-Man No Way Home. You know, given where this film ends, we didn't really want to, we didn't really want to stop the train. Although, you know, knowing the way that we're making these podcasts lately, it'll be a little while before we get to it, but... Coming up next in episode number 34, we're just going to keep rolling along. Why stop? Our next episode, we will review Spider-Man No Way Home, finish up the John Watts Spider-Man trilogy with Tom Holland. I think that's appropriate. And uh, like we said before, we both like that film an awful lot. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. You know, at this rate, you probably won't see that film and we probably won't have that episode dropping until sometime in the new year. But uh, hopefully we'll record it before then. So, regardless of when it happens, you know, hopefully you will get a chance to listen. And we thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, thanks for waiting and being so patient with us as our release schedule and our recording schedule have been, you know, faced some challenges. Because, you know, like we said, we've been we've had we've been up to stuff. It's just you know, life sometimes happens. And you know, while we're while we're while we're on that topic. You know, uh, Emily is wearing a T-shirt uh, indicating indicating her participation in her, I believe, her first ever 25K trail race with uh, EX2 Adventures out in Rocky Gap State Park in Maryland. Oh, because we were going it, to record last, no, two weeks ago, right? I can't even remember when we were supposed we to We were going to record two weeks ago, and then we were going to record last night, but I was at work for... Uh, from 7:30 a.m. to 8 p.m. So, but but anyway, yeah. So uh, one of the things that one of the busy. things that one of the things that one of the, like we said we've been busy, but yeah, Emily successfully competed, completed and competed in the 25k 25k trail race, put up an impressive time. 
still feeling it, I'm assuming, because <laughs> that was just a, that was what, what, a week ago? Two weeks ago now. Okay. So anyway, but we will get our next episode out to you as soon as we can. Thank you so much for listening. We wish you all a uh, happy Halloween. Of course, it'll be past Halloween by the time this episode airs. It might even be Thanksgiving. Who knows? We hope you're enjoying enjoying your fall and uh, having fun and being safe with your friends and family. And we will see you all on the flip side. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. You know what I forgot? You know what I didn't even think about until we were talking about the characters? Do you? I don't know. Do you have I, a guess? I, I, I thought it was a here, let me here, let me go. Let me stop uh Oh, do you want to do you want to keep recording this yes, in case we I want gr- to keep grist, recording this. Grist for the mill. Yes. <sighs> uh, I'm oh, I can Oh, okay, I can already guess. You were probably I'm assuming I never just, once thought about How where what where's where where's that? How it looks like Venom. How it looks like Venom. I never once thought about it until just like 10 minutes ago or whatever it was. Well, you will, you know. A disappointment to Venom. Well, look, you will, because of the post, because of the post credit scene in No Way, in No Way Home, you know, you will get I won't even have to worry about it. You'll get ample opportunity. Yeah. You'll get ample opportunity to talk about Venom in in the next show. And it will be like legit. It won't be forced in. It'll you'll you'll it'll it'll be there'll be no you know awkward segues or transitions. It will be organic, which is kind of a pun in and of itself. Yeah.